This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooker. We often speak about how out of touch I am with pop culture, but Shag, I've got an exciting update, right? So to put in context my out of touchness with pop culture, Shag, Bryson Tiller, um, I still say is due for his Frank Ocean, The Weekend, The Dream moment. And I realise now this is based on his 2015 album and then being on a DJ Khaled album from like 2017. And I'm like, oh, Bryson Tiller just around the corner. Is, is anyone talking about Bryson Tiller or am I, is this just confirming my out of touchness with pop culture? It really sucks because you're on the money for good things, but you're not on the money for anything that will ever be popular. So <laughs> Bryson Tiller is essentially relegated to like, old person millennial and above easy listening now but he did he did he did go for it with a single last year which i adored with diddy of all people like fuck if you want kids to listen to you don't do a co-sign with diddy but he did a song with diddy where he essentially had like i think it was one verse Mm. and two choruses and then diddy did a verse at the end where he's like i'm super rich it was, it was actually really cool. He's like, she don't want my love. I guess I gotta move on. Uh, uh, uh. It's just, there's something like, it's a beautiful song. And I think everyone should hear it. But yes, no. No yeah. one is or will listen to Bryce until ever, Peach. I'm really sorry. It's another goof from me. I remember at like within about the 18 month period, Frank Ocean, The Weeknd and The Dream all hit the zeitgeist. And I was like, oh yeah, Frank Ocean. Like, whatever. Nostalgia Ultra is fine. No one will really care about that. And I was like, oh, yeah, The weekend, Just kind of spooky, weird mixtapes. No one's really going to be into that. Everyone strap yourself in for the dream. And, <laughs> and so I feel like it's just your boy Peach missing again. But, Shag, the update is there's one tiny bit of pop culture I get. I'm watching Deadlock. I'm six episodes in, and I can't believe the red herring was a red herring. Our most recent red herring. I won't do spoilers. But Germany do, everyone go watch Deadlock. It's fun and I'm in pop culture engaging with pop culture. It's exciting. You're in your role right now, which is Mm. someone being instructed on pop culture because that's the whole point of this pod. Mm -hmm. You are someone who doesn't like horror movies. It's my favourite genre. I believe everyone can get a lot out of horror films. So the whole Mm. point of this pod is you or people like you can be exposed very in a very limited way to the amazingness of horror films and hopefully not just get over the scaredness of them, uh, not just get over the fear of them, but mm. to eventually learn to love them. And every now and then we bring on a guest to help out. And this might seem like a bit of a curveball, bringing a guest on with the background that he has, particularly the, the stature yes. in the background that he has. But I will say that food has been a big part of this pod for a long, long time. You know, like we've had Lee Tran on quite a few times, Sydney Food Identity, talking about food-related horror films. We've gone into depth about how wrong cannibal films get about butchery 
and mm-hmm. how most cannibals in horror films don't actually understand how to make human flesh taste good. Just the amount of butcher shaming as well. It's a word used as a slur, as if it's disrespectful to a corpse, when in fact it is the exact opposite. And I really, I really stand up for my butcher siblings and I, and I stand together with them. But most importantly, the original podcast, the reason why we do Exposure Therapy Podcast was Fussy Eater, in which you helped me get over my food aversions. We mm. talk about it as if it's this kind of joke made up podcast. It actually exists. <laughs> we made it like four years ago. You can grab it on wherever you get your pods. There's like eight episodes. It's very easy to listen to. And so it totally makes sense for today's guest to be, I think, one of the more important people in food in Sydney. Mm-hmm. He is the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald Good Food Guide. He's also a restaurant critic for Good Weekend, and he's a good food writer. And now he's a Spooko co-host. Please welcome Callan Boyd. Gentlemen, what an honour. Uh, no, the honour's ours, Callan. Um, as, as I mentioned beforehand, uh, it's very easy to say, like, talk is cheap when you say long-time fan. Everyone can sit down and say, yeah, long-time fan, right? Talk is fucking cheap, man. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm very down to have, to have anyone do their diligence on my fandom of Callan Boyd's because I got my... Uh, years of location in different cities of where Callan's been at, including his one-year sabbatical in Brisbane, spot on. Uh, his appearances on legendary Sydney food podcast, The Mitchin, in around 2016, 2017. Um, and Callan, his writing and, you know, restaurant uh, comments as well in our Fairfax journalism for over a decade now. Callan, it's a thrill for us. I imagine it's less of a thrill for you, so we're really grateful. <laughs> you no, it's a huge thrill. I'm a huge horror movie fan. So to be able to talk about horror films for a little bit instead of talking about steak tartare and the high cost of living and how that's going to affect fine dining on a podcast or radio show is awesome. Well, look, uh, the reason why I invited you on the show is we were chatting at dinner a couple of months ago and... The subject of horror films came off and off the dome, you were like, here's my top five horror films of all time. What are yours? (laughs) And it was like, it was, it was really impressive. And I could like, I was stunned. I was like, Oh, I I don't know if I could name them off the dome. And I was like, I have to get this man on the podcast. But before we get to that, before we Mm. do, I want to, I want to just give a little bit of a fussy eater update. And I think it's important for Callan to be here because I've got to ask you a couple of questions. Mm. Uh, yesterday I came back from a trip to Japan and a trip to Japan with a golden child is a lot different to a trip to Japan as just a, you know, fancy free couple, but we still managed, but we still managed to get some really great (laughs) meals in. Now, one of the things I wanted to try is, uh, when we were in Nagoya, they have a specialty, which is like an eel specialty. I think it's called Hisama Bushi. It's, it's basically like eel on rice, like grilled eel on rice. But then with all these little like side dishes, and the idea is you split your portion of eel on rice into four, and the first one you just savor this flavor of the eel. The second one you pour like a little bit of soup over and, and have it as almost like a quasi sort of like porridgey sort of thing. The third one you have it with condiments, and then the fourth one is dealer's choice. It's like whatever you enjoyed, <laughs> go wild and have it. So I was like, we found this little place. Uh, it's pretty expensive. So we were looking for a place that was a bit cheaper. This place was a little bit cheaper. And I don't know if this is customary when you have this dish or if it was just a like, it's what this restaurant did or we had just stumbled into this like back alley place 
and they were like, let's give these obvious tourists a little freebie, which they 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 gave Golden Child like a free dessert. Like they were doing like nice things <laughs> for us. So I don't know what it was, but before our meals came, they gave us a little bowl of what we eventually realized was awful. Now, I don't know if it was cooked. It was heavily marinated in like a sweet soy, the sort of thing that they marinate the eel in. But both Adele and I are pro- like, you know, I, I went through my fussy eater journey. I'm definitely better than I was, but I'm still quite a fussy eater. And I find offal quite difficult to deal with. But from what we could identify, there were three things in the bowl. I had the heart. I wasn't sure if it was cooked, mm. but it was very, I think it was the heart because it was quite dense. It was very dense, chewy. meaty. Yeah, it was chewy and yeah. dense and whatever. Then I think there was the liver, which kind of tasted like pate, which was really full on. And then there was this. But it was gonna... yielding, like it kind of. Yes. Yeah, okay. And then there was this, which I think were the ovaries. Now I'm going to send it to you now. I want you to have a look at this image. Both, if you guys have your phones on you, I've sent you both a photo of it. This was the thing I couldn't eat. And I'm curious to know what it, what it was and what it would have tasted like if I had eaten. Yeah. Oh, so is it just the, ov- the ovular thing in the top right? Well, or the there, entire was, there, thing? there was what looked like a small egg attached to, like, I guess, a membrane with lots of tiny little eggs attached to it, which I thought meant it was ovaries, but it could have been something else. Have you guys ever encountered this? And what do you suggest it might have tasted well, it like? It looks like a testicle. Oh, sorry, Callum's the expert <laughs> Callum. This is out of my league. It looks like a vet's biopsy tray. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I should have asked Al. I'll ask Al. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I think it's a testicle, um, the large round thing, and then the little corally, clusterly uh, thing next to it. Absolutely no idea. Mm, membrane of some sort, maybe a stomach lining. I really don't know. Um, looks wild, and um, glad that was you, not me. <laughs> uh, it's a good, it's a good epitaph for someone. I think it's a good epitaph for fussy eater, right? I'm pretty impressed that I just like dived headfirst into two pieces of offal, and I, I was close to trying it, but I was like, you know what, this is silly. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> At some point in life, you have to make choices. But anyway, I want to get back to why we wanted you on the pod. So you were able to name your top five horror films of all time, Callan. Yeah. Once again, can you tell us what they are? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been shooting from the hip. Okay, I can tell you, I can probably tell you top three. I would have said Halloween, number one. That's okay. the all-timer. Callan, would you allow me to interrupt when we get to two? And can, and can we try to guess the third? Ooh. Is that okay? So if we hear one and two, we've got to guess yeah, the third? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get the third, oh, gosh, I'll be happy. So this is, is this 1977 Halloween or whatever? John, John, thing on it? John 78. Carpenter. Yes. 78, okay. Yeah, the original, not the sequel, also by the same name, or the Rob Zombie remake, also the same name, which we <laughs> definitely name, don't yeah. speak of. <laughs> anyway, um, number two, The Shining. And those two kind of, you know, when I say top five, it's not really in order, but those two are very much in order. And then I think number three, I'd, yeah, we'll put that at number three as well. So if you can guess the number three, go go forth. Yeah, okay. So, so, so Shag, I think that's 77, 78. And I know what number three is. And yeah, okay. I'll give you a hint because it's not. In fact, I think I know what number three is, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I don't know what number I gave them to you, but yeah. But but I do know because the way you talk about it, Peach, it's a film we've covered on Spooko. Yep. 
it features like a massive twist at the end that would be super it's it i mean it was problematic then but even now it's like crazy problematic oh it's not camp camp town camp house oh! camp, camp camp town playground playground camp camp yes 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 what's it called it- <laughs> Camp Town Playground is correct. That is the name. Camp Town Playground. Here we come, Judah. Um, (laughs) Sleepaway Camp. Yes, Peach, you fucking got it, Peach. You got it. Uh, In fairness, I was going to say Hereditary. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hereditary (laughs) top 20 for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah, what did I say for number four and five? I know number four would have been either Nightmare on Elm Street 3 or 4. Fucking Dream Warriors fan in the house. Yes, okay, let's what get it. What an entertaining it. film, and 4 as well. So I've listened to this podcast a bit. I'm a huge fan of it. And um, I don't – I always feel that you guys miss out on, especially you, uh, Peach, some of the awesome de- uh, deaths, and um, especially uh, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. They are actually yeah, cracking special effects before computer generation ruined it for all of us um and just seeing that you know like you still see the sticky tape making it all up and it's so much fun so yeah yes all right well look one day one day i would like to reintroduce callan boys as the new spooko kill correspondent because (laughs) today's film really is all about the kills now we are still as we approach episode 200 you know in a couple of months we are still in our friendship homework era Mm. and someone you know, message us and, you know, gave us a very, poli- as I say, people correct us, but in the politest, friendliest way. Mm. You know, I think I made mention of A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, uh, you know, in an episode recently. And I, I, I mis-explained the final scene. And somebody was like, oh, actually, the final scene involved this character rather than the character you said. And actually, you should really cover it because it's totally good. And when this person wrote in and said that, I was like, fuck, like, I don't actually think I've ever sat down and just watched the film start to finish. Like, maybe I did as, like, a teenager, Uh, but even then, I don't think I ever have. It's one of those films that's so famous that I just know everything about it. Like, it's just osmosis. It's just in my brain. So I was like, fuck it. I'm not sure I've seen Fight Club. Like, I'm happy to take (laughs) shots at it and be like, it's shit, and I hate David Fincher, but I'm not not certain I've seen it. (laughs) So so I was like, fuck it. Like, number one, we need to cover it. Number two, after having that chat with you, Callan, I was like, this is the episode I want you on because you are clearly a connoisseur of classic 80s horror. And as I was watching it, I had a moment kind of similar to something you wrote, Callan, in a recent review. I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass you. Oh gosh. You recently reviewed a Japanese restaurant in Gordon. Gordon's a suburb in Sydney that you, like, if you don't live in Australia, you should never need to go or even know about. And, in fact, now you've heard about Gordon, forget it exists. Yeah, it's a look, waste of your brain, pup. I worked there for four years, so, you know. <laughs> You're the one. <laughs> you wrote about, uh, about a particular dish. You said everyone, however, should choose that signature salmon, a creamy, Fat ribbon slice of soy marinated belly topped with a frizz of fried leaf. The room spins, my knees weaken, it's the perfect bite. And when I was watching A Nightmare on Elm Street properly for the first time last night, I had a couple of those moments watching the film being like, this is, this is like glorious. This is sublime. This is what horror movies should Mm. be. When you first asked me what my top five were, I couldn't name them. A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 goes straight into my top five. Holy moly. After watching it once. And, and, you know, a couple of things you've already mentioned are reason why I'd like to expand on. But 
to 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 make this episode even more hilariously laborious, and mm. I would like to do that before we get into this film. Before Peach, you watch the trailer. When you do these reviews, and you gave this this restaurant quite a high review, yeah, I noticed you you do the breakdown now. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. It's ten is for food, and that's just what. And I guess that's what you eat, or is that everything on the menu? No, food's what you eat. It's that goes in your. <laughs> <laughs> it goes in your mouth. That's good. Um, yeah, that's ten points for food. You're looking at um, does it taste good primarily? How's it presented? Freshness of ingredients, innovation, technique, all those kind of things. What about menu curation, Callan? I'm sorry to get like wonky, but I feel like there's often a like, you, you, you know, as someone who goes out to eat less often than I used to, often part of my choice for a spot I haven't been is like, yeah, okay, what's the controlling mind behind this list of foods to eat thinking about? And I feel like you can get a pretty good insight into who's running the kitchen based on the way they've arranged their list of stuff does that does that fall into the ten? A- absolutely absolutely um because when you're looking at a restaurant if you're reviewing it you're looking at what is this restaurant trying to do and then how well do they do it and so if you can't work out what the restaurant's trying to do that's a bit of a problem straight up so yeah and you don't also want to see um unless it's you know, a Yamcha or Amazing Cantonese Palace or something like that, um, a huge, like, encyclopedic menu because <laughs> there's a very slim chance they do everything amazingly. So so it's 10 a water, and this is out of 20, okay? So 10 a water for food. So half is for food, five for hospitality, three for the setting and experience, and then two for value at the end. Yes. And then if you get 15 or above, that's a one hat. Yep. If you get 17 or above, I think, no, no, 16 or above, that's two hat. Yep. And then 18 or above, that's three hat. And then obviously 20 is like a perfect. Which has never uh, been allocated. No one's ever scored a 20 out of 20 in the Sydney Morning Herald Good Food Guide. You might as well just make the scale out of 19. But anyway, so. <laughs> Sound like my readers. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what I would like, what I would like to do is amend this scoring system for this film at the end of it, because I think this could be a three-hat horror film. Anyway, so instead of 10 for food, I want 10 to be the premise slash antagonist, Mm -hmm. right? Because generally the thing about horror that I think is amazing is the right premise or the right antagonist is going to stick in your mind. It's going to be the thing that haunts your dream. Five for hospitality, I'm going to call that script and dialogue. So... So, so the premise doesn't, the premise can be removed from the script, but like how well the actual film flows as a film three for setting and experience becomes film craft. So that's how it's shot. That's how, uh, that's how it sounds, blah, blah, blah. And two for value is for scariness slash feel bad club. I just, I love this. I love this. Jack, I think you can just make it up by the time we get to the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how like this scoring system means not, and won't appear outside of this episode, but I'm like, fuck, how do we just nail this right? Anyway, okay. I love it. No, but, and that's the thing with like horror movie reviews. I think you might've touched on this on Spooko before is that um, the Rotten Tomato scores and just general critics' reviews are not reflective of the fan base (laughs) whatsoever of horror. Like, just it's not that you don't get it, critics, but you kind of don't. I think some some do and there's almost the need to elevate it. Like, uh, I'm a critic who actually loves fucking splat splat kill house four and i'm also a film critic can you can you deal with me juxtaposing these two 
these two views. But but <laughs> even beyond film criticism, I think this film, watching this again, and the reason why I'm doing this scoring system, and I'll get to that at the end, is a couple of years ago, Ari Aster releases Hereditary, and the entire world's like, we love horror films now. But even horror fans like myself were like, oh, all other horror is now unwatchable. I only watch elevated horror. And then I watch this and I'm like, oh, fuck elevated horror. Fuck Ari Aster. <laughs> <laughs> like, screw this. No, this, you know, these, in the, in, the, in the 80s, they could create entire worlds in 90 minutes that would haunt your dreams for like 40 plus years. Mm. So, Peach, today, even though this is usually the reveal of the film, just pretend, act surprised. Today, we Texas are doing... Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> the, the 1984 Wes Craven classic, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Let's get it. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? Did you see cuts happen? What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy? There's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left. A new masterpiece in fantasy terror. Nightmare on Elm Street. I could see why someone who ranks Halloween as their number one film would choose this one. I think there's a degree that the trailer reminds me, and I think I've watched the kill count for this film potentially. Um, I think I can see why someone taking a premise that's electric and a bad guy that is charismatic and a filmmaker that is economical but also has those like performative big elements um bouncing around there um similarly to the way mitch and co-host mike eggett i think once posited that the most perfectly seasoned food in the world was either a fresh oyster off the coast of scotland or a mcdonald's cheeseburger um there's a balance of uh high culture low culture like high craft finesse and expertise and a very approachable, engaging uh, plot and story. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this one, my dudes. Looking forward to it. Hey, Callan, where did you first encounter Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street? I would have been about seven or eight years old, and this would have been around 91, 92, and it was the Newcastle Regional Show, and it was the Freddy Krueger Showbag and Showbag Alley. Mm. Now, how the fuck? Now, can I just stop here? How the fuck would they give away a showback? And if if, if showback culture doesn't exist outside of Australia, 
basically you go to these big shows which which are like a fair or whatever yeah i guess it's similar to an american fair like Callum, like would it be like that southern usa tradition absolutely county fairs there's one every weekend in the states yeah right. um and so we have our regional shows and so all the country folk come down they exhibit their cows in a big ring and their cheeses and their cakes and all the city folk come down and um they look at the cows for a bit and then decide i just want to buy a show bag and yeah. the show bag, I mean, they started off as just a way for different companies to put all their samples in um, of food products or whatever it might be, seed catalogs, that kind of stuff. And eventually over time, it just became marketed purely to children. So there'd be like commando show bags, cowboy show bags, magic trick ones, always good. The magic trick ones were just really practical joke. <laughs> show yeah, bags, fake cockroaches, that kind of thing. Yeah. Good fun. Um, but there was a Friday, sorry, no, Nightmare on Elm Street show bag because Freddy was huge. I, at, the, at around 89, 90, like he was big business. I mean, these movies just through the 80s, it's just like one every year. And um, the fact that they were marketing a show bag to children uh with a Freddy glove, a Freddy mask, and a Freddy fedora. <laughs> so you, could, you two could dress up as a child killer at home. Child. And that's a, that's a really important point. And, Peach, this isn't a major spoiler, but, like, Freddy Krueger canonically is a child killer. So the idea that Callan's raising is that you would ask children to dress to up dress as a child killer <laughs> is the most 80s in Australia thing I could possibly think of. Well, like, I think it's impossible to discuss this film without getting metatextual, right, as we kind of already have of, like, Fred, like Freddy, like, there is almost, like, a soft appreciation of, like, oh, crazy old Freddy. Like, he is, like, he is a bit of a character. Like, <laughs> he is, and, he's a character, but a classic character. <laughs> like, and wasn't he revised in the 2010 reboot to be like, it's like, oh, no, he wasn't a child killer. He was a child killer and child and rapist. And a molester, yeah. He was supposed to be or is a molester in the original as well, which we're about to discuss. And if you watch the film, I watched it again last night for the first time in a little while, and with that subtext, there are certainly allusions to it. It was taken out yeah, of the okay. script at the last minute for various reasons. I think they just thought it was a little bit on the nose and thought, we've got to market show bags in Newcastle, New South Wales in about um, <laughs> six years' time. Six or seven years. Probably carbon having it as a molester as well as a killer. So let's just back off on that a little bit. It's like, yeah, good one, good one. The only villain I think that had similar cultural resonance and, and I think would be a step below would be Pennywise for my money. And I've even got golden children who are the ages of 11, 9 and 7 talk about the the clown from It without having any other yeah. experience with it. Like, And so I think kind of like Playground Spooks, it was only really Pennywise that resonated as such. Like Jason Voorhees I feel like is not really in the culture these days. Mike, Michael Myers I guess somewhat. Neither of those in Australia growing up for me were, but Pennywise, yeah, and I think that's because it was the miniseries that we shown like every year or so on network television over, you know, a Saturday and Sunday night and it would be the schoolyard talk on a Monday morning. Yeah. Like, God, did you stay up and watch it kind of thing? And then one kid would uh, and then he'd regale the, the tales to the, to the rest of the class. Um, Spooko style. So this film was created in 1984 by Wes Craven, who I think is the Drake of horror film directors. And let me explain, right? So <laughs> Drake is currently in the US on his It's All a Blur tour. And I just want you to hear what a fucking Drake set list sounds like when you realize oh how yeah, big okay. an artist he is. So it's like 
Marvin's Room, Shot For Me, Feel No Ways, Over, Headlines, The Motto, Hell Yeah Fucking Ride, Started From The Bottom, Non-Stop, Non-Stop, Sicko Mode, Laugh Now, Cry Later, God's Plan, In My Feelings, (laughs) Nice For What. Like, can you imagine just being in the audience for something like that? Similarly, if you go to Wes Craven's Wikipedia page uh, and you scroll down and go to his filmography, it's insane. All right, so listen to this. This is Wes Craven's horror filmography. The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, Swamp Thing, A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 2, Shocker, The People Under the Stairs, Scream, Scream 2, Scream 3, and Scream 4. Like, this man, over the course of, like, from what? From 1972 to 2011, so 40 years, has been a major presence, like a major commanding presence in horror. So it makes sense that this film is as good as it is. But in the way that we talked about Freddy as a character, I think it takes away from what this film does so well and why I think it's almost the perfect, or at least the 19 out of 23 hat horror film. Because it does something that I think no other horror film can from the cleverness of its premise. It, it has created a film series where every single kill can be completely fresh because every horror film has to sacrifice something, right? Like the final destination series can have fresh kills every time, but there's no real antagonist. It's just like the wind is killing these (laughs) these kids. So it's, it's scary, but it's not that scary. Whereas you go to something else like Jason, there's only so many ways someone with a machete can kill you. And and you get gory out. Like, there's only so many body parts. Like, he's yeah. chopped everything off, right? Like, we've run out of things. But if Freddy is killing you in your dreams, there is no end to how he can kill you. This is why it's, it's a 10 plus out of 10 for premise and villain of, like, if you think about a reasonably good horror premise or, or like, your basic successful horror premise, it is literally taking the familiar and making it horrific in some way. And so the more universal the familiar thing something we're like you know what breathing like if we take something extremely universal um dreaming's pretty fucking universal (laughs) um and then the more horrific we can make it of like like sleeping and like to sleep or to dream is to put your life at risk is your like absolute extreme extremity of universal experience mixed with extremity of risk and the reason it's 10 plus out of 10 is that you add a layer of charisma and creativity on top of the, you know, the horror equation. And I just, I'm not sure it can be improved upon. Shag, you, like, you're right. Like, like, I think as a universe, as a setup, it is literally perfect and, and cannot be improved upon. So something I so realized... So why do we even need to talk about it? So if we've <laughs> solved it right there, no, no. there we go. But, but also, another thing, I, another thing I do want to point out, and the reason mm. why I, I, you know, I took a shot at Ari Aster and Elevated Horror before this, mm. because while watching this, another reason why I, why I was watching this and was just dumbfounded by how good it was, is it does create an entire universe in 90 minutes, but it does this by sacrificing a few things we've taken for granted. The dialogue is pretty bad, and the characters are pretty thin. Would you agree with that? I would agree 100%. I don't think the acting is great. This is Johnny <laughs> Depp's first role. Um, he would go on to do other things, I've heard. But I, uh, apart from Johnny, I mean, I've now this is, I know if there's any nightmare 
fans listening, this is not going to go down well, but I don't think that Nancy is the best final girl. I think Tina, who was more prominent at the beginning of the film, would have been better to carry on the franchise. But Tina is a hoe, and this film very much follows... Mm. Uh, oh, yeah, 80s it's a horror shaming genre. Yeah, like, yeah, like okay. you have sex, you're dead. Yeah, okay. And there's there's a very pointed moment early on where, like, Tina goes and has sex and Nancy has an opportunity but is like, no, I don't want to have sex. And her boyfriend's like, damn, morality? <laughs> like, literally has a line that's something like, <sighs> damn, morality. To very, make, it, make it very clear about why Nancy's still alive and Tina's dead. But I guess my point is it's like, that was a sacrifice that is worth it. By sacrificing good mm. characterization and you know and realistic dialogue and just cutting straight to the chase, this film within ninety minutes creates like a universe yeah. for us to explore. It's a lean, mean film. You don't get bogged down and bored for one minute in this movie. And and you know what? Like it's just like even watching it halfway through, I was like, you've revealed the killer, but you haven't even revealed this key mystery. Like this film has layers upon layers. It's so good. And that's not even talking about the bits we'll get to, which are those sublime deaths. At least two of these deaths made me like turn to Adele and be like, I love, like, <laughs> what was I even thinking? I love, and even deaths I'd heard about, talked about in the greatest deaths of all time or whatever. In context, anyway, look, I'm going to stop gushing. I'm doing that thing that you're not supposed to do, which is be like, it's the best film ever before we talk about it. But. Okay, Peach, are you ready for the synopsis of the original A Nightmare on Elm Street? I've got to go in three minutes. So <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. Let's get it. So we begin with teenager Tina Gray. Oh, in fact, before this, this isn't right. Uh, over, like, it's a very, like, something I haven't really seen in 80s films. As the initial credits come up on screen, a small box, so not the entire screen, there's credits down the bottom, and in a small box... We see just the hands of someone building a glove with knives on it. So we see him take a glove, cut off the ends, build like sort of finger hilts, and then attach knives to the end of it. We just see that. Shag, have I seen this film? You might have have seen it. Have talked about this film? We haven't talked about the original. Okay, because it's like Batman Begins. Like I remember we were talking about how it's like, how are we going to do the bat suit? Yeah, we've got to get these little antennas in the... In the head, and there's like a Batman Begins start of this film. Yeah, okay. So we find teenager Tina Gray awakens from a terrifying nightmare in which a disfigured man wearing a blade fixed glove attacks her in a boiler room. Um, the boiler room's really important. It's like one of those like it looks like something out of a steam sheet, but there's lots of steam. It's very dark, like Nine Inch Nails in their first album, sort of film clip sort of setting. Um, she wakes up. And her mother runs into the room only to find she has four mysterious slashes on the top of her nighty. The mother, who is essentially characterized again as uh, like an 80s hot, like I don't, like I am not slut shading. I'm just, this is what the film does. But basically, the mum comes in to check on her, and this guy just shows up at the door. He's like, Come on, are you going to come back to bed? And like, and the mum's like, Oh, you're going to have to stop having nightmares or cut your nails, one of either. And then just goes back to have sex with who we assume is just a random man and not Tina's dad. Oh, so mum herself is immoral as well. Okay, we're judging mum. From the beginning, there's this, there's this clever undercurrent of all the parents of all these kids. There's just something off with them. Yeah, okay. They're either, you know, and, and not that divorce is bad. Like, again, I'm not being like there's anything wrong with getting divorced. Like, 
they're just not your typical wholesome 80s american parents every one of them yeah we're judging them from the beginning right every single one of them is flawed and off in some way the following morning tina's best friend nancy thompson and nancy's boyfriend glenn lance console her revealing that they each had a nightmare the previous night no one's connected that freddie was in all of them but they've connected the fact that everyone's having nightmares and something weird's going on the two stay at tina's house when Tina's mother goes out of town, when Nancy also confesses to having a nightmare about the disfigured man, and they're like, that's a bit weird. Tina's boyfriend, Rod Lane, interrupts their sleepover and, and is like, we've got your, her mum's bedroom, you can have everything else. So they go up to have sex while Nancy and her boyfriend, Johnny Depp, decide to stay at the house, but she's like, we can't have sex. The reason why we're here is to protect Nancy who had this weird nightmare. And that's when Johnny Depp's like, damn morality. Yeah, that's exactly the it's line. It's a tough line. <laughs> like, you'd want a really good director if, if you get that as an actor. That's exactly. <laughs> so when Tina falls asleep after they have sex, and there's a scene where we see Johnny Depp in his room listening to them having sex, and we just hear them go, oh, Rod, oh, God, oh, Rod, oh, God, oh, Rod, oh, God. And then we just cut to them. It's actually kind of good in the fact that there's no real nudity in this film. It's not like a, like, it's a little bit exploitative, but it's not super 80s exploitative. And so we cut to them post-coitally chatting in bed. Tina rolls over and falls asleep. She then dreams of the disfigured man chasing her. Rod is awakened by Tina on the bed thrashing now this is where it gets like this is the point where i was like oh fuck this is so much better than i thought it was going to be um and maybe i think callan because you know the the wikipedia does not do this justice do you want to describe this first death with tina in bed yeah well because she's she's asleep and then she's in a dream and so freddie cuts her in the dream and then the slashes come out from inside her uh and then you see them appear and there's a, there's a lot of blood and a lot of blood a lot of blood a lot of blood and then she just starts writhing on the bed because she's being you know cut up from inside and then just for some reason just um then jumps exorcist style onto the ceiling and then starts just writhing around there's so much writhing um and it's um it's it's pretty confronting. I was watching my wife last night. She's like, oh, I don't remember this. <laughs> <laughs> but, not going as her next Halloween. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and so, it's so much blood. I forget how much blood is actually in this film. Um, and it doesn't look fake either. It's pretty, um, it'll look fake later on the, in the franchise, but, but not quite yet. Not to this first death. And you know what's actually cool? It doesn't describe it, but the dream that precedes her being killed by Freddy, she hears someone throwing rocks at her window. Like, and th- another th- thing this film does well is it often blurs what's a dream and a reality. So generally the dreams just start like it's reality and then they slowly become more surreal as you realise, oh no, we're in a dream and Freddy's about to kill her. So this is the first real appearance of Freddy. And so she hears these, these stones hit the window and she goes downstairs and she sees Freddy and the first thing he does is we just see his silhouette and his arms just extend and extend... <sighs> like animatronically to either side and it's hokey but i found it kind of creepy yep it is super super creepy because he's all in silhouettes you haven't really seen his face properly yet and uh yeah he's walking along the alleyway like come here and give us a hug because you think she's awake and then you realize oh no she's asleep 
And then what happens is the kill happens. We cut to Rod watching this happen, her writhing on the ceiling, you know, her being slashed by an invisible force. And eventually she dies. Everyone in the house hears and they run up and, you know, the police come and show up and everyone assumes Rod's done it because Rod's like a bad boy. He's, he's promiscuous. They weren't supposed to be alone at this house while her mum was out of town and he was in the room while she died. So everyone assumes Rod is the killer and Rod is taken to jail. The mum wasn't in a town, but she was out of town. She was at the casino with the boyfriend, by the way. Yeah, that's oh, right. Amazing. Sorry. No, she's bad news, <laughs> that mum. <laughs> so the next day, yeah. So the next day, Nancy's policeman father. So so Nancy's dad is a policeman, and Nancy's dad and mum are separated. All cops are bad, as this uh, as this movie would uh, have us understand. So Don Thompson, Nancy's father, arrests Rod despite his pleas of innocence. And also, I love I love arrest Rod despite his pleas of innocence because that's how policing works. It's like, yeah, it's like now, did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> Look, yeah, we don't need to get into defunding the police on this episode, but it's like if there's any group of people who are going to be unreceptive. <laughs> All right. So at school, Nancy falls asleep in class and dreams that the man chases her to the boiler room where she's cornered. I also love... Like, God bless this Wikipedia synopsis that keeps calling Freddy the man before oh, yeah, we reveal it. It's like... Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the strange man in the dream. Mm. Who could, he's got knives on his hands. Who could he be? <clears throat> she then, the, like, what, and, and then the clever thing about this film is, like, I do think Nancy's a good final, like, not in terms of acting, but in terms of her character working out how to make the dreams work in her favour. So yes. while she's in the boiler room, she deliberately burns her arm on a pipe. The burn startles her awake in class. She screams and she notices the burn mark on her arm in real life. One of my favorite tropes in all movies and TV shows is having the dream and then waking up with the uh, like feather or ratty fedora <laughs> in your hand. Like, oh my gosh, it was real. <laughs> I think that was like every second episode of Australia's Round the Twist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I don't, I don't want to open too many tabs to steal Callan's excellent line from earlier in the episode, but kids' horror as a genre, like uh, I feel like it's not explored as often these days, but Round the Twist used to freak me the fuck Oh, out. gosh, yes. That Scarecrow clip, clip uh, went a bit viral, I think, a few months ago, the Scarecrow episode. I mean, bursting into the lighthouse and waggling his tongue, Freddy style, at the little straw mask and... Yep, I, that brought back some memories. I had a uh, request. Yeah, doppelganger episodes as well. Like, hey, come, come with me. I am your real parent. And it's like, oh, okay. I think mm. it's a tough line. I wonder if it's cultural as well, because I mentioned at the start of the episode, my family last week were in Japan and we took Golden Child to one of the Disney theme parks. And there's all these, these rides that are meant for kids and they'll have like infant friendly. And there's not many, but... Every single one of the infant-friendly ride has, like, this terrifying moment where it's like, what yep. the fuck were you thinking? Like, there's That's this... That's all th- Disney. That is all Disney. Like, <laughs> they love to have one scary fucking bit. Like, the monorail that goes around Disneyland in California is like, oh, we're just going in the dark. But kush, kush, lightning. Yes, fucking. yes, yes, yes. So there's, there's this, like, it's the old-timey train. And it's this train that goes around the park. And it, it couldn't be slower. And you're just looking out at animatronic deers. And golden child's of an age where they look at these deers and they move and they're like, is that deer real? And you're like, yeah, that's a real deer. Wave at it. And they'll wave at it, right? Like that's the age golden child are at. Mm. 
And then all of a sudden you go into a pitch black cave and you're like, what the fuck? And then it's a fucking dinosaur cave with the Tyrannosaurus Rex being like, and it's like, what were you? And it's like an old timey world where, like, why? Like, thematically, why is this here? Anyway. Every ride, every ride. Every single fucking ride. Anyway, okay. So. Nancy then visits Rod at the police station where, and I think because her dad, like, again, like, this film doesn't give a shit about continuity or whether these things would work in real life. But I do think because her dad is is a detective, she knows people at the police station and she can just go in and visit her friend who's a murder suspect. Uh, and it's kind of fine. Anyway. It's a lot like Deadlock, just to make a call back to the start of this episode. Great show. Go watch it and talk to me about it. So Nancy visits Rod at the police station where he describes Tina's death and is basically like, I didn't do it and I didn't see who did it because whoever it was was invisible. But he also reveals he's had nightmares of the same man stalking him. And then she leaves and he's like, wait, do you think I did it? And she's like, no, and then leaves, right? And she's starting to put the pieces together that there is Mm. someone attacking them all in their dreams. So from there... They try to stay awake, and they're, they're basically like, we have to do everything we can to stay awake. And Nancy does the worst thing you can do when you want to stay awake, which is have a bath. <laughs> and so this is a scene where it's like, what an incredible kill. But also, I wonder if, you know, if I was somebody else, if I identified as a woman, or if I'd had bad experiences in my life, would I find this scene grosser than I did? But there is a scene where we're in the bathtub, I guess the camera is, like, she is under the water and we can just see her legs out of the water and her head at the end. So you can imagine we're sort of at just past her knees and we see this clawed hand appear out of the water while she's asleep in the bath and slowly reach over to her head. And it's just, it's just incredibly creepy. And then her mum says something and she startles and wakes up and the hand retracts. And then she falls back asleep in the tub and then... Her eyes wake up and she's pulled underwater, right? And so all of a sudden she's just underwater somewhere. She's underwater in like basically like drowning. She's reaching her hands out of the tub, but she can't get there. You can hear splashing and thrashing and screaming. Her mum's knocking on the door. Eventually her mum breaks through, which wakes her up, which gets her out of the tub. And she basically has to be to her mum. Oh, I'm really sorry. I just slipped in the bath. Sorry about the scream. I think it's fair yeah, to say that, that, that shot of the hands, Freddie hand coming out of the bath, maybe the most iconic shot in all of horror. If you don't count maybe Marion Crane's scream in uh, Psycho film. Okay. But, uh, I mean, if you look up horror just on Wikipedia or any kind of old, like, 90s, 2000s textbook, that's the we, big. We do that so quite probably, a bit on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so probably show is, like, Nancy in the bath with Freddie's hand coming out of the water. I would argue there is an even more iconic shot, and this is why this film's amazing, just for the wealth of horror, classic horror iconography mm. in 90 minutes. But, yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so... I often, like, again, I don't want to open too many tabs, but, but, but like, I, I've often tried to undo the, like, the link between sex and horror um, and the, like, sexual objectification and horror is probably uh, a more fair way to put it. And it strikes me that, that that part of the horrific elements of some of these films are designed to blur. Like it's an act of sexual deviance, an act of, um, you know, look, an act very, very analogous to 
um, SA, um, and, and and I'm sorry to raise it so so directly without um, pro- providing a trigger warning. Um, and I think part of the horrific elements arise from that as well. Like like I'm, I'm trying to piece together where does sex and sexual transgression. You know, if we're dealing with the morality of going off to sleep with your teenage boyfriend or teenage girlfriend um, in the other room, like I feel like there's a strong undercurrent of that, and and the, and that this scene surely is not accidentally evoking a sort of sexual deviance and sexual transgression and sexual assault. Frankly, yeah. Anyways, sorry, team. I'm interesting stuff. Let's let's continue the podcast. I, I agree completely. And, and mm. you're at your most vulnerable. You're in a bath naked, but mm. male or female, you know, it's you just you close your eyes, you have a nice nap. That's the last moment you expect there's going to be a demon blade hand come up out mm. of the water and go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would argue, and God, like people might disagree. Uh, again, w- why I give props to Wes Craven is I would argue that in a lot of 80s films, having a bath or a shower, if you're a woman, is an automatically sexualized shot. When in reality, you're fucking cleaning yourself, right? Like having a bath yeah. or a shower is not mm. a sexual thing. But in, in 80s films, for a woman, that, and from, from shots of men as mm. well, but generally for a woman, it, it, it was like a sexy shot. And even though the hand appears between the legs, which is obviously, I think, you know, probably pointing to the fact that he is like a child molester, not just a child murderer, I don't feel like she is sexualized in this shot. Which is a low bar, I yeah, get it, but I'm, <laughs> but it's a low bar. It's a, but it's the eighties, and like I'm not, I'm not giving him credit for it, but yeah. I'm not ticking him down. For There's it. no, yeah, you're saying if it was, if this was a Jason film, be like, all right, we're twenty minutes in, we need to see some nipples. Basically, yeah. yeah okay. All right, so Nancy then relies on caffeine to stay awake and invites Glenn to watch over her as she sleeps, and she's like, I've got an idea. I need you to stay here while I go to sleep. And I don't know if this is where she says the line, but before she tells this plan to Glenn, she's just generally talking about how fucked this situation is. And she looks in the mirror and she's like, oh, my God, I look 20 years old. It's so weird. <laughs> I've never felt older in my life than watching it last night and hearing that. It's like, oh, my gosh, I wish. You know, right? <laughs> um, but that kind of, just around this part and just going back, so I'll forget this point if I don't bring it up now, that, perfect 19 out of 20 review that we're doing um it's all about the tone i think of this film as well and that kind of waking dream slash nightmare and you never quite know if they're dreaming or if they're awake and um i think it sets it up really nice in this part because she falls back asleep again and then she wakes up and a mum but is like hang on she's still dreaming here you're going to try and trick me three times and then the movie does a smart thing where it doesn't and then that sets it up for you just never quite quite know when they wake up if they're really awake yet or not. And, um, yeah, you can kind of, later on the franchise and other movies, you can kind of keep the tales of when they're asleep or not. But in this movie, it's, it's really hard, especially that first watch, even the fifth watch, if we get like, hang on, I forget. Yeah, anyway. So it's that That's time, it. that uneasy, unsettling kind of thing of, and how does a restaurant make you feel? Do you feel like satisfied and comforted and elated and oh my gosh? And a horror film as well should make you feel like ugh and disconnected and just like ugh. And I think this does that really well with that kind of you never know. And that's that two points I'm saying at the end. You know, we call it feel bad club. It should make you feel bad, whether that's terrified, whether that's disturbed, oh, yeah. whether that's just off axis. Three out of two. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Okay. So 
in her dream, Nancy wanders over to the police station, looks through the window to see Rod in his cell, and sees this mysterious man walking over to Rod, preparing to kill him. When she screams, the man turns his attention to her. She runs away and then wakes up when her alarm clock goes off, realizing that Glenn fell asleep and is like, fucking hell, Glenn, I asked you to do one thing and you fell asleep. She then goes over to the police station to be like, I think Rod's in trouble. The police don't believe her. And as she's basically at the front desk being like, please, can I see my friend? I just want to know he's okay. We see the bed sheets that Rod's sleeping on slowly twist into a rope, wrap itself around Glenn's neck, pull him up, and then hang him. And again, this, this film is not perfect, you know, in terms of realism. Definitely medical realism. Obviously watching anything with a nurse is hilarious. But Adele's like, you wouldn't die that quickly. Like, he basically <laughs> is hung, and then he's alive, and then, oh, I'm dead. And, like, it's almost like he automatically has, like, corpse paint on his face when he dies. That's what Nina said, my wife, as well. Like, he went white very quickly. Nine-minute <laughs> <laughs> film. Gotta get it done. <laughs> we then go to... This is, this, this is another really funny thing. So, at Rod's funeral, Nancy's parents become worried when she describes her dreams about this man. Now, keep in mind... We didn't have oh, a funeral for but, right. but we also yes. didn't but also we didn't have a funeral for Tina. We had a funeral <laughs> for the guy that maybe killed Tina yeah, and right. maybe <laughs> killed himself in it's in awesome. prison, but we didn't have a it's it's just and it's like a it's like a military funeral. Everyone's sitting by and the priest is like gives this homily where he's like, Look, I know he might have done some bad things, but you got to remember, some people do bad things and everyone's God's children. It's just like, it's a it's a strange, like tonally it's a weird moment. But I do like that they're kind of like the slow reveal with the parents. Like, I feel mm. like that's kind of the secret uh. source of like good, good, like very, very strong horror formula, as we said, universal flips to horrific. Hey, some fucking guy kills you in your dreams. Yep, 11 out of 10. And then just a nice slow like whodunit element kind of slowly unraveling mystery. I think that that maybe is more of a secret source than coming up with a good idea. Like it follows a similarly great idea that doesn't quite have the unraveling mystery. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Gooey. No, no, no. It is, it is mm. so satisfying. And this is where it gets even more satisfying because the whole time they they don't just take it lying down. They're like, how can we fight someone who's hurting us in our dreams? Or at least what can we do about these nightmares? So, her mother, Marge, takes her to a sleep disorders clinic where they basically put her in a dream and, you know, put all, attach all the things to her skull mm. to measure her brainwaves in the dream. And there's a really great bit of dialogue between the mum and the scientist. Because while I was watching the film, I was like, oh, like, I, I seem to remember, and maybe this isn't true now, maybe this was true in the 80s, maybe not now, this idea that we don't 100% understand dreams. It's not like we can go, we know exactly why people have dreams and what they are. And the scientist says the same thing. He's like, Dreams are essentially magic. They're a thing the brain does and we don't quite get it, which is awesome because it means Freddy is still inexplicable depending on what he does. Anyway, so while she's having a dream, Nancy is attacked by Freddy again, starts thriving. And so the guy, the, both the mum and the scientist run into the room and wake her up. And they're like, are you okay? She's like, no, look at me. And she's got slashes on her arm. But not only that, she's brought a fedora out from the dream with her. Ugh, and and the scientist's like, look, I've got this sedative. We've just got to get you to sleep. And the mom's like, we've got to get you to sleep. And she's like, no, I can't ever go to sleep again. Look at this. Look what happens in my dream. Look what I brought out of this. 
and in the fedora, she finds the name Fred Krueger written in it. Nice. Specifically Fred Krueger, not Freddy. Yes. Right? Right? It's Fred Krueger. <laughs> and he's Fred Krueger at the beginning of the film in the credits as well. Fred Krueger. Like, what the fuck is Fred Krueger? Who the fuck is Fred? <laughs> well, this is like part of the interesting metatextuality. Like, is he even called Freddy in this? I think in a song at the end. Yeah, he is. Nancy calls him Freddy towards the end as well. I don't think he's ever actually called just Fred. <laughs> which, which, which I feel is a shame because that would be great. And there's, they never quite explain it, explain it, but it kind of makes sense. In this town, there is a hyper-local kid song that all the kids sing when playing Skip Rope where it's like, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better shut your door. And what's really fucking cool about this song is even though it's like nine, ten, never sleep again, and you're like, oh, it's about Freddy and dreams, but like, no, maybe it's not because get this, okay. Well, five, six, get your crucifix is always one that I've never understood in this song. Of like, <laughs> he's not like a van. It's not vampire rules. It's like different rules. And also, like, yeah, and also, like, just you can't use a crucifix on every month. Like, it's not like Chucky's coming along and it's like Chucky yeah, deal like, with his crucifix. <laughs> <laughs> Although we've just we've we've established if Chucky's coming along, you just kick him away because he's a yeah. doll. Okay, okay, so Nancy comes home, and Marge has put bars on the window, and Nancy's like, "What the fuck are you doing? This person's attacking me in my dreams." And Nancy realizes that her mum knows something about this person, and so Marge is like, "Okay, come down to the basement. I'm going to tell you everything." And so she explains that when they were younger there was this man in the town called fred krueger who was a child killer who killed 20 children in this small town and the way she describes it she's like everyone just got fed up with it (laughs) forget this (laughs) this is this is too many okay okay fred (laughs) one dead kitchen so anyway, he gets caught. Was Nancy's dad a cop at the time of Fred committing these? I think I think there's an implication that he helped in the investigation of Fred. Um, Where they so, were unable to prove. No, no, wait, 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 wait. Okay. So they caught like, him. All cops are bad, but this is especially bad police work. I wait, wait, yeah, wait. Okay. They, they, and this is this is a legal question for you, Peach. They caught Can't him. Yeah. He went to trial. She's like the judge and the lawyers all got rich. But when it came to actually convict Freddie, someone signed a warrant in the wrong place and Freddie was released on a technicality. Now, can I ask? So, so. Legal legal question. No, no, no. If I killed, and not that I want to or ever will, but if I Mm. killed 20 kids Mm. and one of the police people investigating me signed a form the wrong way and submitted that to the judge for evidence, can I be released? Well, like, so we're now actually getting into reasonably fine bits of appellate law, right? <laughs> I think the actual answer is maybe. <laughs> Perfect. Um, because if a judge is re- well, it depends on whether the decision was made, I think, based in reliance on that very specific piece of evidence. Right. Because if and so, it was, I think there's grounds for appeal. So it was a warrant, which would have been the thing that would have searched his whatever to find the evidence. His house, yes, yes, his yes. finger blade gloves. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and and so let's say it was the finger blade gloves. So so let's say the case relied entirely and solely upon evidence obtained pursuant to 
a warrant that was granted improperly. I think probably there's grounds for a retrial at least, like on appeal. And the lawyers may well get rich. So, so if we does the judge get rich? So is it suggested the judge gets? Yes, yeah, so that's <laughs> the, the judge the gets judge, rich. That's getting rich is amazing. Well, I don't think the judge. Yeah, okay. Sorry, Shag, go. I mean, if we don't trust the legal system, everything falls down. So shouldn't we be okay with Freddie being released? Because it's like, well, they followed the law, and well, yeah, vigilante justice. Look, everyone's a libertarian who likes <laughs> horror films. Like, I think you know, to an, to an extent, you guys have each got a libertarian. So, well, sorry, you're either a like anarcho syndicalist, <laughs> sort of at least socialist, or you're a libertarian. And so, I think half the audience is cheering to be like, yeah, yeah, can't can't trust government to deal with this. We're gonna have to deal with Freddie down here in the furnace. So this is what happens, right? So the parents mm. are like, well, fuck this. And so they get together. And mind you, these are the parents of kids who haven't been killed by Freddy. So I guess they're kind of a bit like, we don't want him killing our kid. Yeah. So right. they chase him to his boiler room where he took the kids. And I, it's probably good and it's probably very 80s that they don't describe what happens. And I think that's why he's only referred to as a child murder and nothing more. Yeah, there's a line in there from the mum, Nancy's mum, saying, oh, he would take the children to the boiler room. And you're like, oh, there it is. So there's something yeah. happened in that boiler room. And that's kind of it. That's kind of it, right? Like, and there, there's something, it, it, it's, not, it's not wholesome, but it just makes the film just a little less, like, like it makes it a little less gross than it could be. And it makes a bit more Stranger Things, which I think is the film is all the better. Yeah, okay. So the parents, anyway, chase him to there, uh, lock him in, pour like some sort of ignitable fluid into the place and set it on fire. And so she's like, look, the reason why I know Fred's not coming after you is because he's dead and we killed him. And then from there, it's the implication. The reason why the parents are all fucked is because they all killed this man by themselves and no one's talking about it. And it's it's essentially a, a secret they all share, which I think is such a cool fucking reveal. Yeah, it's 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 brilliant. So Nancy tries to call Glenn to warn him, but his father is basically like, "There's something wrong with Nancy and these kids. I don't want him do, having to do anything with my son." So she's trying to call Glenn to be like, "I know what's happening," but she can't get through to Glenn. Meanwhile, Glenn's trying to stay awake in the most eighties way possible by lying on his bed in one of those like midriff football tops oh uh, yes right uh one of my pet grison films is posters in teenage oh my god yes perfect they always are <laughs> like they look like they've been put on by billboard glue like just amazingly tetris and presented like when i was growing up i sure like every kid would be blue tacked and they'd just be always sliding off and all puffy and yes. gross and blah 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 so look anyway um so I always kind of look to you know mark a Poster work out of 10. This is pretty good. This is a 6.5. I I was looking at his wall. I was doing the same thing. And I think there might have been a Midnight Oil poster. Oh, gosh. And I the hope reason so. Why, oh, no. The reason, no, no. The reason why I say this is because there was the, it wasn't the full Indigenous flag, but it was the yellow sun on a red background and a black handprint on the sun. Yeah. And I feel like I have seen that image in one of the in some of the imagery midnight oil used at the time and they were a they they were an international prospect in the 80s absolutely they they did yeah down in wall street they did a live show i i thought it was a stopgap beluga mines 
Which but either way, related. There's something there. Okay, I'll, I'll look. I'm going to look into that into Reddit. Yes. Later on. that's yeah. awesome, man. But the posters look like a teenager might have put them up, unlike a Dawson's Creek, for example. Yeah. Sorry, continue. So anyway, so anyway, he's in his bedroom and he's got his headphones on, listening to records while he's watching the TV. And his mum comes in and she's like, "Don't you want to be able to hear the TV?" And he's like, "No, mum." I'm watching the Miss Nude USA pageant, so I don't have to hear what they say. And the mom's like, oh, you're terrible. And it's like, again, I'm not saying this this film doesn't have to be real, but the idea, Mm. number one as a teenager, that I would tell my parents I was watching nudity on screen, and number two, that they would be like, classic teenage son, is mind-boggling. Well, like the sassy comeback, like, ugh, like, shut up, mom. I'm <laughs> becoming sexually aroused. That's why I'm watching this. Get out of here. <laughs> it's like, it's He's got the TV, which is almost the size of an esky on his bloody lap. <laughs> it doesn't look comfortable. <laughs> anyway, so, so Nancy's trying to call Glenn. She can't get through. So Glenn falls asleep. And this, I would argue, is one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic horror death in at least 80s horror history. Callan, our Spooko Kill correspondent, tell us about this one. Oh, my God. Um, Speaking about geysers of blood. Oh, my favourite kind of geyser. Holy moly. Like I've never seen in a film before or since so much blood except for maybe The Shining, and I feel they might have been taking the leaf. This movie takes a lot of leafs out of a lot of books, out of films rather. But um, so, yeah, uh, I can't remember exactly what leads up to it in, in Glenn Johnny Depp's dream, but he gets pulled into the bed and the TV on his lap comes with him and then there's a brief moment of nothing and then just this eruption, this oil bloody you know fountain of blood is just over the roof and just the whole room and i yeah you never see anything like you never see any like flesh or any kind of gore but just this yeah this married with children level fountain of um yeah hemoglobin and then the mum comes in she gets a little bit on it and yeah oh my gosh yeah that's i I, that's look it's sec i well it's neck and neck really both two iconic images yeah that's that's the number one death, though, I would say, in the franchise. It's just so cool. The idea that you would be sucked into your bed, a pause, and then a geyser of blood, you know, decorating the roof. It's just, I mean, it's, it is, it's that moment. It's, it's to, to quote you again, the room spins, my knees weaken. <laughs> but also, death. like, this is, this is part of the triumph of Freddy of, are you not like, oh, okay, it's a suck you into the bed and spew out a geyser of blood monster? It's like, <laughs> no, no. The, like, like, it's an infinite version of Death's monster. Like, Shag, your point about the machete, right? Of like, there are only so many ways you can suck someone into a bed and spit out a geyser of blood. But this is just one mere incarnation of the infinity ish ways that Freddy can come at you. I. I it's brilliant. It's Freddy's, he's kind of his, within that though, he'll do two things at Steve. I'm just thinking this now. You'll either really taunt you and just disorientate you first in your dream, or just make sure you're super cozy, whether that's in the bath or lying in your bed with your uh, twelve inch on your on your on your lap watching Miss America, and then just you're super cozy and then just get ya. Well, he has a sense of humor. Like even even without directly doing jokes, like there is a playfulness hmm. to that. There's a there's a there's a teasing. If if, if, yeah. if Freddie was at the original show looking at the show bags, he definitely would have got the practical joke show bag rather than his own. 
<laughs> he would have <laughs> pretended to be a practical joke show bag and then be like, yeah, surprise. Perfect. And, and, yeah. I, and I'm not going to say there is or isn't an afterlife, but if there is, you're probably going to look back on how you died and have certain feelings. And I feel like everybody who gets killed by Freddy would be like, oh, that was actually pretty classic. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> <There> you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's really important to say at this point, so Glenn's been killed. Before he gets killed, this isn't in the Wikipedia synopsis, but mm. there's this really nice moment where Glenn and Nancy have a chat where they're both talking about what they've been reading. And Nancy's been reading this book about creating traps and booby traps. Uh, Cause she wants to, and like just general, like survivalist, like how do I stop trap someone culture. who's coming? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Glenn talks about how he's been looking into Balinese dream work. I can't remember what the term is. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's like dreams. No, it's dream skills. Balinese dream skills. I don't know if this is real or if Wes Craven made this up. Bali is obviously a very real place. If you're (laughs) not from Australia, like if you're not from Australia or Indonesia or Southeast Asia, Bali might not be a place that you've heard of enough. In Australia, it's an island in in Indonesia where most of Indonesia is uh, Muslim majority. Bali is Hindu majority. So it's, it's a bit more of a relaxed beach place. And Australians go there to holiday. And... Australians who go there to holiday, and I've been there as well, so I'm not, you know, discluding myself from this, have a terrible reputation of just being drunk and boorish. Absolute shitbags. Just shitbags and just shitting on the culture, basically. Anyway, so so that's Bali. That's Bali in 2023. Good time. Well, it's Bali from about the late 1970s, is my yeah. understanding. Yeah. But 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 Balinese dream skills is this idea that when you're in a dream or having a bad dream, you have to turn it to your advantage. So if you dream you're falling, you go, okay, I'm falling. I want to fall into... <laughs> this is, uh, when dreams give you lemons. <laughs> t- <laughs> oh, my God. It's dream hustle culture. <laughs> it's dream hustle culture. I start dreaming at 4.30 a.m. with a glass of water with a slice of lemon in it. Yeah. So his, his, his example is if you're falling, what dream skills would tell you to do is turn where you're falling to into a magical place you want to fall into. And... And then Nancy's like, well, what happens if there's a monster in my dream? And he's like, oh, well, dream skills tell you, you just have to turn your back on that antagonist because once you do, it'll have no power of you. That's important to remember. Anyway, I mean, it's so important to remember that it's essentially the end of the film, but let's, 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 let's keep going. Okay. Now alone, Nancy puts Marge to sleep and asks Don, her dad, right? So her mom is like 80s drunk. So She's always oh, got hiccup, a bottle of schnapps and hiccuping. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, nice. And, and basically, she passes out drunk. And so. Does she have stink lines coming off her or anything? Basically, like that? yeah. yeah nice. And Marge has locked her in the house to be like, you need to sleep. You've been up for like two days straight, which is actually probably pretty fair because I don't know how long you can go without sleeping, but I think at some point you give yourself brain damage and eventually die. It all comes back to hustle culture of like if you if you want your dream if you dream big enough you don't need to sleep at all <laughs> you just gotta keep hustling. <laughs> but if you combine hustle culture with dream skills, so even in your dreams you're hustling. You can turn your dreams into staying. Maybe your dream is to stay awake. You should, if you're falling, fall into a room where you can write down your goals. <laughs> where you can meditate for ten minutes and then journal. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um. Or dive into an ice bath and Wim Hof. <laughs> All right. So, uh, okay. So Nancy is locked in the house by her mom who's asleep. So she shouts out to her dad who's across the road because Glenn's been killed. So Glenn and Nancy live across the road. It's not that important, but it's important mm. here. 
because she can see her dad. And the dad's like, stay there, stay put. You're safer there. You know, you're locked in. And she's like, in 20 minutes, exactly, I need you to come down here and burst down the door because I'm going to catch this guy. And the dad's like, whatever, but then sends one of his deputies to keep an eye on the house. So Nancy then sets booby traps all around the house and intentionally falls asleep to be chased by Freddy. And so she's being chased by Freddy again. And Mm. eventually she realizes she's close to the end of her dream. So she grabs Freddy, like she dives on Freddy and then she wakes up in her bed and there's this awesome moment where she's alone in her bed and she's woken up and she's like, fuck, maybe I was just crazy. And then Freddy appears out of nowhere and like dives for her and then she runs away. And this is where the film becomes Scream because a big part of Scream is that Ghostface, like before he kills people, always gets like hit in the head or knocked by doors or whatever. And in this sequence, it's basically Home Alone starring Freddy Krueger. Yeah, he's very clumsy. He's super clumsy, right? Like, so, and and it's like, it's probably what he would have been like in the real world, which is probably why he was killing kids. It was practically like kids probably weren't as hard a target as adults. (laughs) It's like, that's true. Like, that's probably why. That's probably right. Okay, all right. Okay. (laughs) So she manages to knock Freddy out, runs out of her door, closes the door, and locks it. And, like, rigs something up outside the door. So when Freddy busts his way through the door, a sledgehammer hits him in the balls. And he's just like, ouchie, sort of thing. Like, it's almost comical. This is the third movie, just by coincidence, that I've watched <laughs> in the past week where there has been an axe or a, or a mallet booby-trapped to the ceiling <laughs> with <laughs> Oculus. Uh, and, Oculus? And, and ready or not. Oh, oh god! Oh, and, and then I was like, watching this, like, this is what's going on? What? what <laughs> uh, but, but in those films, the characters get pretty fucked up. Freddy, yeah, gets hit in the balls, goes ouch, and then pretty much moves on with his day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically like that. Yeah, nice. So, it's so, Joe Pesci, and I'm, I'm going to kill that kid. Yeah. So, so the police arrive to find that Kruger has escaped from the basement. Nancy and Don go upstairs to find a burning. So, so they're accepting the existence of crew, like the police are on board. Well, now. well, eventually they get they come in and Nancy's managed to set Freddie alight, and it, it, it we find out that maybe his Achilles heel is being set alight, <laughs> but in the real world, but she sets him alight, and I, at some point they realize that like she's like I've got him downstairs. They go downstairs. And he's not there, but they find these burning footprints leading upstairs. And she's like, oh, my God, he's going after mum. They run upstairs and they find Freddy on the bed trying to strangle the mum. But he's also on fire. So I feel like the fire is probably more dangerous to her than the strangulation. But uh, it's again, it's a it's a minor note. It's a terrifying scene. After Don extinguishes the fire, Kruger and Marge vanish into the bed. And there's this weird scene where she essentially gets sucked down into the bed in blue light. And then there's no one there anymore. When Don leaves the room, Kruger rises from the bed behind Nancy. Realizing that Kruger is fueled by his victim's fear, she turns his back on him and is like, you have no power over me. He tries to lunge at her, but as he does, he sort of becomes sort of blue light and just disappears into the air. That's more hustle culture because that's a powerful affirmation, right? That's... Yeah. Exactly. You gotta look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself every morning. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I've told a really good affirmation mm. is the opposite of what your, you know, what your inner voice, your inner saboteur tells you. 
So if her inner saboteur is like, there's a man in your dreams trying to kill you. It's yes. like, well, this man in my dream is not trying to kill me. Like, <laughs> it's a good one. It's a strong one. That's it. It's a way to cope with fear and and trauma and just say, yeah, you're just in my head, whatever. Get out of here. Yeah, nice. Also, perhaps this is a metaphor for self-care, this film. So Nancy then steps outside into a bright and foggy morning where it's like, all of oh, and she has this line to Freddie that's pretty again, pretty important. Where she's like, "You have no power on me. I want my mum back. I want my friends back." And so she leaves the door of her room, and all of a sudden, she's outside of her front doorstep, and her mum comes out alive, and she's like, "Mum, are you okay?" And she's like, "Yeah." And then, as anybody like will tell you, the easiest way to stop drinking, she's like, "I don't feel like drinking anymore. I'm going to stop." That's how addiction works. Yeah, that's poker machines. Yeah, I've lost too much money. <laughs> <laughs> not enjoying it. <laughs> so, oh my God. So Glenn pulls up in his convertible and Tina and Rod are, are alive in the back seat. So everything's back to normal. And so she gets in and she waves goodbye to mum. Okay, all... so it all turned out. Okay, Wait. well, that's interesting. Check it all. <laughs> so, so then the roof of the convertible out of nowhere goes over the top and it's the green and red stripes of Freddy's jumper. Oh. And then the doors lock, the windows go up, the car drives off without anybody touching it and they're like, what's going on? And as Nancy looks out the door at her mum waving, Freddy's hand appears through the window of the door, grabs her head and pulls her whole body into the little window. And that's the end of A Nightmare on Elm Street. That film has taught me, like this, this, this movie has taught me why the bad guy has to win at the end of the film, I think. Because I think if we succeed in reading a book about booby traps and reading a book about Balinese dream culture fucking hustle mode, <laughs> like then what it turns out is that the threat was actually not very threatening at all. And I think that what we get affirmed leaving the cinema when um, fucking Gregory Peck dies in his attempt to fix the omen or when fucking whatever it follows like, is off to strike again what, and when Paymon turns around to be like, well, I'm going to get up to some shenanigans, is that we understand that we were right to be scared the whole film. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, that, that perhaps even is the difference with kids' horror that you have to end, like no matter how scary Doctor Who is or whatever, you have to end being like, oh, it was a donut monster from the planet Chocolate just trying to look for the next delicious bite. Whereas with quote, quote, traditional or real or grown-up horror, having us leave understanding that the threat we've witnessed is sufficiently threatening that our protagonists couldn't deal with it, I think is the right note to leave us on. I think maybe I should start watching horror films. This is pretty cool stuff. All right, so so let's end by... Giving this giving out this our score and see if this is a three hat horror film. I'm ready. So, Callan, Callan should go first, of course. So out of ten points for premise and antagonist, what are we giving it? Ten. I, I ten kind of like think- ten plus, which is to say, and when I say ten plus, I mean that if there's a line call to be made on any other criterion, yeah, I'm content to round round up, up rather than round down. I like that. All right, now five points for script. And keep in mind, this includes oh, dialogue as well. I think well. this takes it out of three hat immediately. <laughs> I, think, I think this is two. See, I think it's oh, a three. 
Because, because it's not yep. just the it's not just the dialogue. It's the fact that to Callan's point, this film, there's no dead air in this film. There's no boringness. Mm. It just it just goes. But Peach, I want to hear your reasoning for it too. Well, well, are we divorcing script from plot and story, or are we are we marking it like no. we can plot? No, I think plot, story, and and, and script are in this. Are in this, yes, because I think oh, premise. Then, is, then yeah. I think it's three and a half mm. because I like I think the way it unfolds. Like the actual yeah. mechanical steps through the plot, and I think I'm specifically talking about the who done it with the slow, un- slow uncovering of Fred Krueger, is enough to say, look, the actual di- lines of dialogue and interaction between characters is on its face pretty crap, but the the underlying engine driving the story forward is pretty rigorously made. I, I, I think it's a three or three and a half. I don't well, know, Yeah, 3.5 for yeah. me. I think, yeah, okay. uh, yeah, Nancy does have a nice arc and she empowers herself to take Freddie on in her dreams, which, again, will be a yeah. hallmark of the franchise, but um, she, she is a pretty awesome character. Um, so we're already at 13.5. Yeah, okay. but mm, All right. the other but, guys but wait, are going wait, to wait. do pretty well to get to that 18 out of 20 for three yeah. hats. But- but wait, but wait, but wait, three points for film craft. So that's including special effects and I think that, you know, the inventiveness of how it looks. What's the soundtrack like? Because it could be two and a half or if the soundtrack's fucking insane. It's, a John, it's, a, it's an 80s John Carpenter soundtrack. Yes. It could be three. Is it three? I think it's three. I mean, we didn't really talk too much about the special effects, but at one point, Freddie's tongue, and there's a lot of tongue work in this, but it comes out, oh, of, yeah! it comes out of the phone. Um, which is pretty amazing. I love that prop in my house. Um, and also, <laughs> there's, there's the amazing like marshmallow steps or staircase when she's walking. Yes. Down, which we've all kind of had that thing you dream where you can't move. Mm. You you're just sinking sinking down in quicksand, and so for the steps to become that quicksand, and you like amazing. It looks incredible. There's some hawky stuff as well, but um, you know, it's it's, it's fun. You know, which special effects should be. So it's three out of three for me. Yeah, that, that all makes very good sense. So that's 16 and a half. And then the final what's two value? points. Yeah, what's the Well, no, no. So this is, this is for scare, for, for Feel Bad Club. How does it make you feel afterwards? Like, does it make you scared? Does it make you disturbed? If it pushes you in one of those directions, you've got to give it a score out of two. At least one. I think, I think we could all agree. Oh, at least one. I, th- I think it gets us to 17.5. So it's, so it's an almost, so it's a two hat. Horror film. Well, well, Almost well, three. well, well. At least, at least one with the ten plus lingering. So, if there's any, if there's any line call to be made, I think that call gets made in favour of the film. And I think with the end being pretty iconic, Shag, I think you've shown yeah. it to me before as saying, yeah. "Look, this is your iconic. Oh, the bad guy's still alive and out yeah. there." End. Then I think this becomes at least a one and a half for like spook out feel bad club. And so I think that gets us to 18. That's a really good point. I, like, Callan, are you on board with this? Mm, yeah, I would say one, 1. 1.5. Um, it's, I don't feel as, like, icky after, like, as I do after watching Hereditary. But Hereditary is a 2+. plus. Like, Hereditary made me feel bad about the world. Right, but, like yeah, but I don't think that's the sole goal of the nightmare as well. You still want to have it. It's that Friday night seeing with a whole cinema yeah. of, of people your own age, just having a bit of a hoot and a holler as well, and kind of leaving. That was a bit fun. Oh, I do feel a bit weird when I go to bed, but that was pretty fun. Yeah, I, hope I, don't, a I don't feel bad. Yeah, 
Maybe um, it's maybe it's just a one. Maybe it's one. So so it's a strong two hat. It's which, a like, which, strong which, two hat horror. Which film. actually feels that feels pretty pretty fair. I'm going to I think Matisse to have like a anniversary meal later in the year. Yeah, I think that's two. You know, Fix Fix St James doesn't even have one hat. Like that's probably my favorite restaurant in the city. Like you know, I I, I think. Not everything has to be three hats to be amazing. Ooh, I, I like. I think. I think we're. Um, I think this podcast is getting started. Two hours in. <laughs> <laughs> I like where it's starting to go. What do you say, Carl? Yeah, I, I would say strong two hats. I Halloween and The Shining three hats for me. Yeah. Sleepaway Camp fucking zero hats. but it's a like it's your mcdonald's cheeseburger like oh well no it's not quite that it's your bowl of noodles in a weird food court absolutely um and i think this is what uh so netflix i was reading an interview the one of producers there and they always like to go for the gourmet cheeseburger is what they say of their content so squid game is a gourmet cheeseburger (laughs) where super super you know populist but also like there's a fair little of skill behind it too and i think nightmare kind of hits that Gourmet cheeseburger really, really yeah. well. So, yeah, solid two hats. I've got to say, Callan, thank you so, so much for All joining good. us. Hey, on- it's been oh, I've loved doing this. And, yeah, I could go for another two hours now that we're really starting to get into the weeds. I'm down. Maybe there's another career in you reviewing horror rather than just food. No, I like it. I don't really like foods. So that's why it's, you know, it's a shit. That's a lot. I love well, food. I love eating out. It's, 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 it's great, but it's, it's you know, gosh. Um, I, love, I love horror films as well. By the way, I just want to say before anyone writes in, the other movie I watched with the Booby Trap was uh, Your Next, not Ready or Not. As I said, no disrespect to Ready or Not, great film. Also, it probably has Booby Traps in it. I can't remember. It's been a while. I needed to clear that up, otherwise I wouldn't sleep. Oh, your next is the wills and estates dispute one, isn't it? Yeah, which is why yeah, I'm okay. confused with ready or not, which is also a statey. Oh, yeah, it's about intergenerational wealth. Australian female yeah. lead also. <laughs> and, um, yeah, anyway, I guess <laughs> we're just getting started. Uh, well, then we've got to drag, drag Callum back for a cannibal film, I think, Shag. Like, we've really got to get, we've really got to get eating people solved, and I can think of no better expert. So, 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 so Callum. Yeah, oh, uh, you did for- Fresh already, didn't you? Oh, my gosh. We that's did. A, that's a cracker. But Phenomenal if you do, film. If you do Nightmare uh, 4, the Dream Master. Then I'm no, gonna... that's, I'll oh, Dream Master, fucking yeah. shut up, Peach. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's got oh my Oh, my favorite. God, with the, with the pizza scene. Yeah, no. That was in one of your dreams, Shag, I think. Didn't you tell me that was a dream of yours? Freddy ran a pizzeria? No, there's there's a there's a Freddy kill where he's a oh. pizza and he's a meatball. <laughs> yeah, that's that's five. Okay, yeah, all right. Gotcha. <laughs> but Flores has the amazing, and I'll use this term now just once, Kafkaesque uh cockroach metamorphosis. <laughs> death which is just incredible right. so yeah anyway we've got to drag you back for it all can like can we do the shout outs like do we do we just want everyone to buy the gfg or do we want everyone to check you on socials or or what's the, what's the most callan content oh, you out can follow there me on instagram people who love at, it at callan boys or threads 
which I don't know what to say on that yet. I've had a, I'm trying to do the thread stuff as like a little bit more, oh, my horror movie interests, but no one cares. They only care about food <laughs> stuff. So, um, anyway, so anyway, we'll leave that. So, yeah, at Callum Boys, all one word. And then also, uh, the Good Food Guide will be coming out in October in Sydney and in Victoria as well. So oh, you South didn't Wales give a restaurant I liked a high enough mark, huh? <laughs> Fuck that. Yeah, I'll tell you what, man. Like, the, every time I hear, like, oh, I can't believe you gave this lasagna place a hat. But I also hear people saying, well, why can't, you know, this amazing Thai restaurant get a hat either just because, you know, they have, you know, plastic cutlery. And it's a great point. And trying to, yeah, work that out year on year is, is a big challenge of putting the guide together. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a really good collection of food we like across both states. So, yeah, heading down the south coast uh, tomorrow to check out some restaurants down there and the Batemans and other dollar area. Looking forward to that. So that'll be out in October and you'll be plenty about it across the city, Monty Herald. Rick Stein for life. Yeah, there's a really good KFC in Batemans Bay. Always, like, fresh chicken. When there was a Wicked Wings drought in New South Wales, they didn't run out. <laughs> Worth checking. Good, good tip. Thank you. <laughs> Carl, stay safe. We love you. Eat well. Talk soon. Cheers. Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe, and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?